Drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. This is episode four of Drive-by Cinema. I'm Rick. And I'm Paul. Hello, Paul. Now, Paul, I wanted to ask you, and I did forget before we started recording, is your laptop going to stop recognising your face when you change glasses, log you out, (laughs) and leave me speaking to nobody for five minutes? That is a distinct possibility, yes. Well, it happened four times, I think. Uh, Happened four times last week. Uh, just to fill people in, uh, one, welcome to our wonderful virtual soapbox here in uh, non-geographical Hyde Park. A computer, I, I have three Windows logins, one for work and one for myself and one for other, another one for, for, for when I want to stalk people on Facebook. And It's very good though, clearly. It recognises the moment your face changes in any way. Well, unfortunately I set up the three different accounts at different times. And I tend to buy a new pair of spectacles every year. If I just take my glasses off or whatever, it'll log me out and log me into another one. And that's what happened. It logged you out and left me on a single... doing a monologue, basically. Yeah, well, you were quite happy talking along to yourself. I, I think I rejoined the Zoom conversation at some point. And, you and were... I barely noticed, yeah. yeah. So I don't know what that indicates about either of us. Uh, so, have you got any listener letters, Paul, like what I get every week? All I've done is opened up a very colourful legacy screensaver by Jeff Minter on my computer, and I'm happy. So, I don't I don't care for letters, Richard. Why? Tell me more about your letters, please. They're an extremely last, uh, last millennia uh, proposition. Are they, are they abusive? <clears throat> Not yet, no. But there's still time, and we haven't published the last episode yet. <laughs> Hopefully. Uh, I, I could be writing them, Richard. I could be writing you abusive letters. Did you ever consider that? Are there any points to raise about last week's uh, movies? Well, you've got a letter to tell us about, surely. No, I don't, really, I don't. Not this you time. You were lying. Uh, oh. I, well, I just thought I'd give you the opportunity to share uh, the love. Uh, I mean, people have uh, said nice things about the podcast so far. Well, I'm really happy for them. Good. Um, Did I sound sincere? Painfully so, yeah. Well, welcome everybody, particularly those people who have said nice things to this elite parking spot for the contents of your mind. (laughs) I was going to say that it is the year 10191. Oh, it's not. That's what the start of June says. Ah, okay. I thought I'd take it too much laudornum again. Laudanum. That's how we pronounced it, yes, back in in the 21st century, yes. Yeah, so it's not 2020 anymore. 10191 is a long time away. Uh, And I think we're expected to understand that the people in Dune are all human beings who have migrated out. So we're talking about Dune, the movie, are we not? We're talking about David Lynch's 1984 adaptation of Frank Herbert's 1960-something... Novel, 64 or something. Thank you for that very specious clarification, Richard. <laughs> specious, <laughs> thank you. So, you know, last week when you proposed this, I was shocked, horrified, alarmed, because this is not a movie that you could have missed over the last 20 years in self-imposed exile in the People's Republic of China. 
Well, I never said that. I, I never said that my purpose was just to watch movies that I missed. I inferred that, did I? I'm sorry. Perhaps fur- fairly, yes, but you did infer it, I think. I am very excited by it, but it's too big for us. That's that's my concern. Well, let's just stop stop and try, take a step back. I mean, it's too big, but also for the reason because this year, in 2020, Denis Villeneuve... The guy who did Arrival. ...is launching his version of the Dune movie. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see what kind of a legacy approach, or how he gestures towards the legacy of David Lynch. Does he ignore it? Does he include it? Well, I don't think you can ignore David Lynch's interpretation of this book. Already a very big movie, but the fact there's so much you've got to, you know, if you're going to make a new version of it, you've got to take on board Lynch and his approaches, and I think it makes it even bigger. But why were you saying it's such a big movie? Not because of David Lynch, I don't think. Well, the novel, the Frank Herbert book, is, I think, regarded as, well, I think it's one of the most popular sci-fi series in publishing history. It was the best-selling sci-fi novel ever, wasn't it? Still is, I think. It's, you know, 40 years ago or more. No, more now, isn't it? 50? I don't know. It's a long time ago. A lot of people... 40 years ago today that Sergeant Spice taught the band to play. A lot of people have spilt a lot of ink over analysing Dune. There's a lot of books in the series. Well, for the purposes of research, I hopped onto eBay to look at the magazine Analogue, copies of Analogue, the magazine in which Dune and its two, the two subsequent novels in the original trilogy were first published in, in serial, serial format, yeah? And this is for the purpose of the podcast, not to see if I could grab a bargain. But uh, if you're interested, Children of Dune, which is the third instalment, was serialised in Analogue in about 1976, I think. And you can back a bargain there. You can get those those original magazines for about three or four pounds a piece. So, aha! Now, you haven't you have not read Dune, right? That that's a fact. No, I haven't. No, I did read Dune, and I even tried to read the subsequent book, and I gave up on it for reasons we can explore if you really want. But well, I just think it's problematic, you know, for Lynch to say, "Well, if you'd read the novel, you would have known." Do you... Is that how you felt about the film? Did you think you couldn't understand it? It was... Um, the, the plot was unfollowable unless you had read the novel beforehand. I mean, a film that's not standalone, a standalone piece, is not really a film, is it? It's a mistake, yeah. Well, he wrote a companion piece to the novel. Mm. I mean, at Sonne Luminaire for, to, to watch in the castle grounds of your novel. It's... This is what I mean by this film being too big. Right, you've got to set the scene for this film. Everything about it is big. Right, so the novel, Frank Herbert's novel, is novel is already groundbreaking, seminal, important, and let's be honest, weird. Even for a out there science fiction, it's weird. And then you bring on board to, to direct this film. You bring on board David Lynch, who is a director renowned for his weirdness in many ways. It, it I suppose it's a match made in heaven, right? I mean, no one else, I think, in some senses, no one else could have done Dune this way. And what what did he do to Dune? Well, that's a great question. What did he do to Dune? I mean, well, we'll get our scores at the end. But did he slaughter it, or did he did he sacrifice it? Did he sanctify it? Do you think he re- he regrets making this film? He he thinks it was a failure. I think he thinks he sold out, which implies that he went too commercial. 
which implies he wanted the film to be weirder than it is, which is astounding. What was that film going to be? Well, one of the things about the, this film is that frequently during the movie, the characters' thoughts get voiced aloud by an, a, a, a you know, voiceover. Yes. How did you feel about that? To start off with, I thought, oh, this is an anachronism. And then I was reminded of, like, turn of the 90, late 1970s, early 80s Woody Allen films, where he often puts subtitles underneath the dialogue uh, to indicate that they're thinking and saying two different things, you know. And I thought, how twee, how nice. But then about an hour and 15 minutes in, I was just getting annoyed by the fact that pretty much every other utterance was a reflective thought to self, an internal dialogue from one or other of the characters. It got very, very annoying. Well, when you ask if that was a reflection of the novel, the thing is, a lot of books, you get an inner voice, an inner life of the character that you're following. In the book, it's just a feature of books, I think, that they can do that. It is, yeah. But I remember when I was a kid reading Lord of the Rings... Uh, which is a, you know, a book you might compare Dune to in many ways. But I always used to think... Well, plus or minus the, uh, the uh, 55 pages of doggerel elvish verse. But yes, go on, <laughs> I'll accept that. I always used to think of Lord of the Rings that this would make an amazing movie. It has to be a movie. It's got to be you made. You can see that movie in your mind. Is what... Yes, absolutely. Constantly. It, it was... Did it look like New Zealand? <laughs> But I'll tell you, when I was reading Dune, not once ever, ever did I ever think this should or even could be a movie. So we've got a weird novelist, we've got a weird book, a weird novel, a weird movie maker who's embarrassed and didn't even put his name to this film. He, he... No, I don't know. I, don't, I think that's a bit of a myth. I, think he, I don't think he took his name off the movie. Uh, I think he took his name off one of the edits of the movie. Those uh, voiceovers for people's thoughts, I don't. I didn't mind them because I think they do things that are necessary to convey some of the bits of the book and some so much exposition in this film, as you say, and it perhaps wasn't was never adequate, but so much exposition of the whole story has to take place outside of the normal conventions of movie making because there's just so much to get over, like the bit where that little drone comes out of the side wall. And in the book, you know, Paul obviously knows immediately what it is and he, he explains what it is. He's thinking it's a hunter-killer, whatever. It, it will kill him if it stabs him. And he knows that he's going to have to grab it tightly because it's got a repulsor field underneath. And they had to do that. Yeah, they had to do that in the film because otherwise you'd just see this thing come out of the wall and him grab it and you would what would it mean? It wouldn't mean anything to you. Interesting that that little drone that came out is that is although it's ten thousand years in the future and there's advanced technologies, uh, this this drone can't really see. But in terms of the technology, did you not think this was maybe the original steampunk movie, or was it Terry Gilliam's Brazil? No, I don't think any of that. Either of those count as steampunk. I mean, I understand the aesthetic you're referring to, but I don't think they're steampunk. But yeah, the the, the Harkonnen planet uh, stuff was brilliant. That cable car that Brad Dorff arrives on is amazing. Look, this movie has an amazing cast. This is David Lynch's idea of Hollywood that you're talking about, isn't it? It's got a, a, a cast to die for. Kyle MacLachlan. Kyle MacLachlan. Now, it's his first movie. Well, he appeared with David Lynch later, didn't, didn't he? Yeah, he's in Twin Peaks, and uh, he's made a name for himself in Hollywood. Think about Kyle MacLachlan. In, even though it was his first movie, he looks like a movie star. 
He's got tremendous presence. His first big screen outing, yeah. And he's playing, you know, opposite Max von Sydow and Sting, for goodness sake. Oh, Sting, yeah. I think David Lynch was very clever not to give Sting A lines whatsoever. <laughs> I, have a, I have a very very brief claim to frame about Sting. Is that, uh, yeah, uh, the girl who lived in the bungalow next to me when I was a little kid, uh, later, you know, when we grew up and went our separate ways, she became uh, Sting's kid's uh, babysitter. Or, or au pair, or nanny. Wow. Hmm? That's quite a claim to fame, Paul. It is, and I'm not at liberty to suppose how pecunious or how generous he was in paying her wages. No, I'm sure. You must dine out a lot in that story. <laughs> well, what's your, what's your claim to fame, Richard? Uh, my mum used to go out with Ian McShane. No, he of Lovejoy fame. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Our, younger, our younger listeners will be not typing that name in to find out who he is. Well, he, is also, he was also in Deadwood and American Gods as well, which is on Amazon Prime. Well done, Ian. Well done. Well, Manchester boy made good. Also, uh, the Fremen uh, are the uh, native, indigenous race to the planet that uh, the Atreides clan are relocated to contains all the spice in their imperial verse yeah no well the spice right is a central theme in dune it's required apparently by the spacing guild so that they can safely navigate the spaceways the hyperspace or whatever it's called it must be used recreationally also though i guess so i mean everyone is eating it because it extends your life uh so the emperor and his family have it this is all stuff you don't get from the movie, obviously, though. And also you don't get this from crack cocaine, do you? <laughs> it doesn't extend your life, no. No, it shortens it, I think. Because you only have a set number of heartbeats, don't you? That's what... Like, all, all animals have a certain number of heartbeats. Do you this know? is why mice die quickly, yeah. Because yep. they use them all up so quick, yeah. They said that... Well, if, if you need spice to navigate hyperspace, how did we get to that planet to find the spice? Ooh... I thought this was a big plot hole, but apparently it's all explained uh, in the Frank Herbert kind of universe. I mean, I, I could imagine ways around it, but yeah, it's not very satisfying, is it, though? Do you know the book is an inheritor of the tradition in sci-fi of the Stellar Empire, right? And I think this is kind of started by Asimov, maybe, in the Foundation series. I mean, there may be others. Well, it certainly wasn't started by George Lucas. No. But let's get on to that in a second. Well, George Lucas owes a great deal to Dune and... Uh... Well, I've got a list here I'm about to read out, but you make your point first, Richard. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, this stellar empire idea is... These days, I guess it's... We know it best now in Game of Thrones, weirdly. Not, obviously, a science fiction thing. Uh, the idea in Dune is uh, these multiple different houses are constantly at war... And the Emperor has got this political machination stuff going on where he manoeuvres the different houses like pawns on a chessboard to try and further his aims. Like a clash of the titans. But he, of course, is beholden to the Navigators Guild, who are all spice addicts who use it to navigate. I've, I've forgotten spice is a real, a real drug these days. It is, yeah. No, you were saying Asimov really wasn't the precursor to this, you know, grand imperial... No, I think he was. I think the Foundation series is, which is, I think was written in the 50s, lays the groundwork for Dune. And Herbert is definitely doing something different from Asimov, 
but there's a lot of parallels and this stellar empire idea is taken i think directly from that or maybe it's just such a common idea that it's not really copied it's just it, it's just a trope that crops up one problem that i have with frank herbert's dune is i don't really understand the subtlety of the political machinations i mean the emperor do you get it do you understand what the emperor is doing Yes, because I've read a synopsis oh, on Wikipedia. Really? But without that, I don't think I would have got it from the movie at all. And this is my point, you know, it's a companion piece to a novel, which you just point out doesn't explain it either particularly well. So, the, the Emperor's plan is this. He takes the Harkonnens, House Harkonnen, out of Dune, the only planet where spice is made. And mm. He installs the Atreides family, where our hero is the son, uh, into... Uh, rulership of Dune, uh, which is which is populated by the locals or the, the native or the Aboriginals, the Fremen. Yeah, yeah, which they completely underestimate because they think they're primitive. They're all kind of Munchkin-like, or, or no, just one of them is the little cook. She's like a little Munchkin. Yeah, she just happens to be short. I think. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry to all short people out there. Yeah. So the Emperor moves the Atreides in, and then the Harkonnens can then attack them. Yes, there's a pretext or a justification for them being attacked, and the Imperial fleet can be brought in to support the assassination, essentially, of the Atreides, Atreides clan. Why? Why is that now a pretext for the Emperor moving against them? He put them there. I don't know. Yes, it would be obvious at this point. Well, he couldn't move against them on his own. No. Because they were very popular. Ah, they were, they were popular. Yeah, in council. They had too much support in council. One of the reasons I don't think I ever really got on with Dune is a lot of this wishy-washiness. And also, it's a very 1960s hippie style. It's dr- A drug is the solution. It's enlightenment in the pharmaceutical form. <laughs> and it, everything focuses around it. I mean, I'm sure, you know, Herbert must have been using something, mustn't he, to have come up with this. Well, this generation of Californians just never really got beyond that. It was an idea that persisted even through to new generations. David Foster Wallace and Infinite Jest uh, was the idea of a pluggable brain video drug kind of thing hmm. uh, that would give you infinite entertainment. I don't find it persuasive yet. But anyway, back to you were saying, you know, was Asimov the guy who started this off? I know I was saying, well, it certainly wasn't Star Wars. I mean, Star Wars itself is a copy of Kurosawa and Flash Gordon and Dune. It's, it's a direct copy of Dune. Blatantly lifted. I wouldn't say it's a copy of Dune because the story of Dune is so weird. Tatooine, Arrakis, <laughs> homelands, deserts, yeah. farm, farm, farming people. I agree. Moisture the... farmers. Yes. Dew collectors. Yes. Yeah. Sand crawlers, vehicles on sand. Yes. Sarlacc uh, and the sandworm, okay. Spice in Kessel. And spice melange, the force and the voice, you know, it just it's just a blatant lift of everything that's in Dune. Yeah, okay, uh, you're quite right. Yeah, it, it's pretty open, and yeah, he takes a lot of things. But he, as you say, he also draws inspiration from Kurosawa and from uh, yeah, a lot of Star Wars is taken from that. I mean, I must admit, I never saw the links between it and Dune until recently. My next question is, why was Star Wars so successful? And why has Dune failed? Was it because David Lynch made the movie? <laughs> or was it for other reasons? It's because it's too weird. It's too weird. I mean, 
and you can you can't grasp it. If we look now towards twenty twenty and the new Dune, do you think it's going to be a homage to Herbert? Is it going to be a homage or a remake to Lynch? Is it going to be a retro reboot, or is it going to be a new movie? Do you think? Is it going to be fan service, or is it going to be something that's actually just out there for everybody? as a new franchise. What do you think Villeneuve's going to do with this, Richard? These days, it seems to me in filmmaking, the watchword now is authenticity to the source material. Ah, okay. I mean, this has been, I think, since the Harry Potter days and stuff, you have to maintain a very close correspondence with the source material, I think, to be taken seriously when you're adapting a book. And I can't see... Well, here's one thing, right? In the books, Paul Atreides is supposed to be 15 years old yes he is yeah and i think in the new movie the trailers that i've seen the lead actor could pass as a teenager whereas carl mclaughlin could never pass as anything but 20 years old even when he was 40 actually <laughs> i don't think it's going to be a challenger to star wars but uh, well we'll see we'll see i mean i'm looking forward to seeing it but again i fundamentally i don't like the story of Dune. Okay, here's the question then. What is the message of Dune that you got from the film? I came across Tor.com and the idea was that uh, it's a racist movie uh, with a white saviour complex. You know, Paul Atreides is this white guy who's here to save the natives of the universe, be it the Fremen, be it the other people in there. Uh, and uh, one, this is a very, very ignorant thing to say because his father in the book is is not just ollie skinned he's dark skinned herbert was influenced very heavily by the story of lawrence of arabia right which would be a white savior complex and i think that's probably where they got this from yes but i ask again what do you think the message of the film was is there a broad message of dune i this is where it falls down compared to star wars because star wars is patently a fight between good and evil yes whereas i mean uh paul atreides is a conflicted and conflicting character in the novel itself Mm. I don't know. It's morally grey, yeah. It's it's, more, it's intentionally morally grey, uh, which I think Lynch took away in his attempt to Hollywoodize the whole thing. He he took away that and made him more of a hero figure. It's an allegory for modern day, the modern day attempts to control the flow of oil in our on our earth. Yeah, you could see it as a well, you could see it as a moral framework because you know, you know the idea that you take this resource from the lands of these people, not necessarily with, with their uh, full consent, as it were. Among the things that Lynch changed about the movie, some of them small scale and some of them bigger, there are two big things that I spotted. And I don't find it easy to see this because it's a long time since I've bothered reading the book. And to me, David Lynch's film is so big that it looms large anyway in my memory of the whole Dune story. But there's two big things that he changed. The one is, the first one, and the most obvious one, is those weirding modules that they wear around their neck that turn sound into a weapon. And that might strike you as a strange insertion. Now, in the books, Paul has been trained by his mother in the Bene Gesserit ways. Which is a, a, a Jedi fighting way, essentially, isn't it? He's not? trained in a martial art called the weirding way. So he's very good at fighting hand-to-hand. And he impresses the Fremen by doing that when he first meets them, I think. He also impresses his mother by sticking his hand in a feely box. <laughs> Presumably there are worms in there. Oh, is he, is he cooked kidney in there? Oh, is it, a raw, is it a raw liver? Oh, I don't like it. <laughs> oh, he must be the chosen one. 
No, he's not afraid of raw liver in a box. It's a pain amplifier. It makes it feel like his his hand is burning, man. David Lynch is quoted as saying that he didn't want there to be like kung fu on on the dunes, as it were. So he replaced the weirding way with these guns, so that they could shoot things. Well, he could have said, "Let battle commence. We're just going to put some water down on these sands. Just going to firm it up." If you jump at the right residence, we could get some quicksand to appear beneath your opponent. <laughs> All kinds of sophisticated Jedi techniques for winning on the sand, aren't there? So he made that change, though, for cinematic reasons, I think. He just didn't want to do a Kung Fu movie. There is this thing about the voice that you can use to tell people what to do. Um, yes. So that's one change. But there's another much bigger change, which is the bit at the end where it starts raining on Dune. And I think we are to infer that Paul has made that happen in some way. It's not explained how or why that should happen. He's a cloudburster of some nature. Now, this was the only thing that Herbert did not like about Lynch's movie. Because Herbert said that his story was about the dangers of men pretending they were gods. But Lynch's change made the story about a god pretending to be a man. In Herbert's original... The, the idea that Paul is the chosen one is just that. It's just a, it's a myth that was actually seeded around the galaxy by the Bene Gesserit because they're trying to make a Superman. So yeah, obviously he's, cha- he's the only man that's been trained in the Bene Gesserit ways and he takes spice and it makes him prescient. But so are the guild navigators. That's how it works. But he's not, he's not a god. He's just a very capable and devious guy. And, and the story is really... Uh, him manipulating the Fremen to get his revenge on his enemies, and he's just using them, which makes it incredibly morally ambiguous. But that doesn't come across very well in the movies, does it? As you say, Lynch makes the Harkonnens like comedy pantomime evil. Well, we've got the Baron, who is a wheezing ephibophile. There's some suggestions that the Baron is an object to express uh, anti-homosexual sentiment. I mean, what do you feel about that, Richard? Well, this film has been described as the most homophobic movie ever made, which surely to God must be, must be hyperbolic. But the argument is that, yeah, <laughs> it, it expresses... Well, you know, it depicts the Harkonnens, really, the, all of them, as, uh, as homosexual and deviant and sadists. Rapacious homosexuals. Yes, yeah, yeah without redeeming qualities. I mean, you know, they could, I suppose, just happen to be evil and happen to be homosexual, but it's nonetheless a, tr- a troubling depiction, isn't it? But let's move on to something lighter, which is prefix anxiety. I got, uh, <laughs> I got quite a lot of prefix anxiety when they use the word decaliters. <laughs> yeah, millions of decaliters of water are being stored. Yeah. Because there's a deciliter, don't forget. So this is, it's not just... And that would be a crazy unit. Yeah, deciliter is a tenth of a litre. That would be four shots of whiskey. Yeah, that would be a crazy unit to use when measuring millions and millions of gallons of water, wouldn't it? (laughs) Which he does. He says, you know, there's ten billion decaliters. Which he could have, yeah, he could have avoided by saying there are, you know, ten million of (laughs) litres. So, why did Lynch do this? Is it in the novel? Or is it because he's trying to make it European to give it this kind of... I'm not going to say steampunk because you don't agree with that. This kind of future feudal feel. No, it's futuristic, isn't it? Americans think. But is it is it future feudal? Is it this idea of it's like a feudal future kind of thing? You see, 
So he's referencing European units, which we don't use in America. You know, nobody says liters or decaliters in America. So why is that there? Well, Americans do numbers differently anyway, don't they? I mean, Americans would say like $1,500. We would never say 1,500 pounds, would we? We would say 1,500 pounds, wouldn't we? I mean, well done for, for coming up with 1091. No, 10191 as the way of saying the year. Because <laughs> we haven't really sorted out how you say the 2000s properly, have we? Well, it's the noughts or the noughties. In America, it's the noughts. Or the oughts. It's the oughts in America. The oughties. The A-U-G-H-T. I don't know how you say that. Outs? Suffice it to say, we seem to both agree on the idea that this is a weird, weirdy, weird film. It's like Marilyn Manson singing Happy Birthday, isn't it? It's weirdos doing Hollywood, or trying to do what they imagine to be Hollywood pulp. You know, and it comes out so, so weird. It's an intriguing film to watch. Very. Uh, visually, it's absolutely astounding. The sets are stunning. I loved watching it. It's David Lynch does Disney Castle, you know. It's, it's fascinating, really, to think, wow. And there's all this kind of uh, fetish wear, all these, you know, rubber, you know, latex oh, yeah. clothing. And, like, the opening scene where the Navigator's Guild guy turns up at the Emperor's Palace and you get all those guys in black body bags mopping. Yes. <laughs> mopping around <laughs> the fish tank. They don't mop very well, either. They leave a big, uh, a big wet patch when, when they exit. Yeah, what is all that about? What are they doing? I have no clue. <laughs> you feel like you're the girl in a Disney TV special where she, you know, she's been falling asleep in her LA apartment and she's suddenly become Queen of England kind of thing. You're transported to this, 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 this place that just doesn't make any sense. But I guess it must make sense to David Lynch. But it, it looks like a feudal castle, but you can tell it's a future because a lot of things float. For no apparent reason. (laughs) (laughs) All those lights in the Atreides castle, those Art Deco things just floating around. Yes. Do things need to float like that? Are we just waiting for the technology to make our lights float? Or I mean, wouldn't it just be easier to stick it on the wall or hang it on the ceiling? I think it always would be easier to stick it on the wall, yeah. You'd need a lot of extra energy to make something float. And it'd have to... Like carry batteries with it, and you have to recharge it, wouldn't you? Someone would have to go around collecting the floating lamps to recharge them for the next night. You'd think, unless they do it by induction, and you know that seems very inefficient. So I thought I put a bit of thought into how you would just make things float if you wanted to. Do you have any ideas on this, uh, Paul? As a bit of science. Sorry, super superconductors. Oh right. So under a magnet, with a magnet. That's how we usually make things float, isn't mm. it? With superconductors. That's a clever idea. I hadn't thought of that. Because, of course, of the four forces of nature, the only force that has a repulsive quality is electromagnetism. No, you're wrong. Oh? Go on, name another. Dinner party. Dinner party silences. <laughs> Very powerful. <laughs> Powerfully repulsive. But not normally regarded as a fundamental force of nature. Yeah. Five minutes of silence can do that to your dinner party. Yeah, no shit. People don't hold dinner parties anymore, do they? Not, not in the last couple of months, Paul. As you may well know, that's it's against lockdown rules, especially in Greater Manchester. You have to, I think, you have to have declared your bubble on the parish notice board at least two weeks prior to a visit. And sat in the stocks whilst having watermelons thrown at you. <laughs> And then there's that Catch-22 where you get to Tesco Express. You know they don't check at Tesco Express. So you think, shall I go in and say to them, look, I'm coming in to buy the face masks. I'm going to pay for them and go out very quickly. Put them on and come back in again. 
I'm always stuck in this catch-22 when I forget my face mask. But at Marks and Sparks, they're much better because, you know, they really won't let you in to buy a face mask so you can go out and come back, come back in again because they're very strict. So they've got face masks at the door and they rip it open for you without touching the face mask. And they sort of, you know how you tease a face mask out without touching it? Like, then they put the face mask in your trolley and say, make sure you pay for that when you get to the end kind of thing. Well, I have a bandana that I wrap around my face, which I'm so used to uh, wearing now, I think I would probably feel naked without it. So you don't wear the surgical masks? No, I, I wear a bandana around my face, like a bandito. Well, they're expensive. Three pounds for three at Marks and Sparks. I, I tend to pay for them every time I go shopping because I've forgotten to bring them, so I've got a huge stash <laughs> of them. If anyone wants to write in and get some off me, you're welcome. Sorry, you were saying... Yes, so the point I'm saying is nobody's clear about any rules on this stupid lockdown anymore, are they? No, exactly right, yeah. We should just turn it into one giant Ibiza phone party. The hell with it. Let's just all jump in there and throw throw our foamy virus all over each other. Sounds like you're going for a herd immunity strategy. <laughs> well, let's have if we're going to digress and talk about this. Yes, I think what we should have done is when we built those hospitals and they weren't used, we should have said, okay, we've got accommodation for 100,000 young people. Get all the young people. Stay at work. Do not visit anybody who's older than 35 uh, and section ghettoise the community into two parts you know the vulnerable and non-vulnerable and insist that the non-vulnerable join the phone party and get infected yeah i think that would have been the quickest way about it this party political broadcast was brought to you by the phone party party <laughs> sorry i didn't think about superconducting levitation that's a great idea no my idea was in order to counteract the force... With meditation, of... surely. No. In order to counteract the force of gravity, all you need is another very heavy object over your head somewhere. I worked it out. What you need is... Is a Death Star. You could put a heavy object, say, 10 metres over your head somehow. Yeah. Uh, you just need a mass of 1.5 times 10 to the 13 kilograms to counteract the force of gravity. So a small black hole... You don't need a black hole, actually. Clever clogs. You could do it with. <laughs> you could do it with neutro, neutron matter from a neutron star. If you had such a substance, then you would only need a sphere about twenty-four centimeters across. Amazing. The problem is, I think, that there would be quite a severe gradient of gravitational force from the Lagrange point that your center of presumably you won't put your center of gravity on it. So. You know, that would be a very grave point, but you could you could you could offset that great gravity uh, with some hilarity by shaping this object in 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 the form of a large dildo. And you'd also need to think about how you support an object that weighs one point five times ten to the thirteen kilograms, ten meters above your head. That's a heavy dildo. It is. It is. It's, a, it's also quite big for for that kind of thing. There might be horses on on Arrakis. There are no horses. There's only one kind of animal on Arrakis, isn't there? That's the other thing. The other reason why this damn film is unfilmable are those bloody worms. I just don't buy them. I don't buy them as a thing. But that's how worms do. They, they eat the soil and, uh, and then poo it out, don't they? That's how they move through the soil. And so it's, it's this giant soil-chewing machine, isn't it, with the, with, with the rotating teeth? But just, what nutrition you know. do they get out of the sand? And how much nutrition are they supposed to get? And how do they breathe in the sand? Well, they process spice, don't they? No, I think they produce spice, or the young produce spice. I don't think they eat it. 
So this is the problem, isn't it, you see? The problem, the problem with this movie is inclusion. Unless you thoroughly understand this multiverse, you can't watch this movie because there are so many, there are so many loose ends. The Harkonnens, who are comically evil people, properly depraved, as we've discussed. Oh, very, very bad skin. Ah, well, here's something you don't know because you've never read the books. And actually, I don't know because I've never read all of the other books. Because it wasn't in the first book, I don't think. The reason that he has bad skin is Baron Harkonnen is Paul's grandfather. Ah, I did read this somewhere. Yeah, he raped his mum's mother. So this is the other thing that Star Wars has lifted. Luke, you are my son. But it's a curse anyway. His disease is a curse. And another reason why it's considered very homophobic is that seems to be an AIDS reference from the the mid-80s, yeah. And Darth Vader, of course, has asthma. So... (laughs) Yes, but Darth Vader, unlike the Harkonnens, wasn't ginger. All the Harkonnens are ginger. They're all ginger, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and also Sting is one of them, so... Paula, are you a ginger? Technically, I was at one point. Uh, It's big of you to admit that, especially considering. Because we do know from this film... And other reasons that gingers don't have souls, don't we? They will hunt down albinos, won't they? Uh, well, on that light note, um, <laughs> is David Lynch a ginger? Is that why he did that? Well, he's he's white-haired these days. But... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think people who believe in this kind of ginger essentialism would consider that, that stops him being a ginger, would they? They would say <laughs> he was always a ginger deep down, even if he dyed his hair or shaved it off. I want to ask you about the ducal pug. The ducal. Pug. You didn't see the pug that they carried around? I think Patrick Stewart, one of the amazing casts of this movie. Patrick Stewart winds up carrying the ducal pug around. I didn't see that, no. What? You didn't notice that Patrick Stewart was in the film? And I didn't see a pug either. I was, I was really consumed by thinking about the sandworms. That's all I thought about. <laughs> what were you thinking about them? When they got stuck out in the desert... Paul and his mother, was it? They got stuck out there. You know, I just, how do someone's do the someone's know where they are? They they lay those sonic those sonic deflectors. Dumpers, yeah. Dumpers to vibrate. They're attracted to rhythmic vibrations. If you walk without rhythm, you won't attract the worm. Well, you missed the pug then. Maybe you should watch it again. I don't know about you, but I had to rent this movie. I did rent it, yeah. However, I've just discovered it's free on YouTube. Well, you can look for the pug. I mean, to be fair, if you wanted to find YouTube videos, if you wanted to find YouTube videos of pugs, you would be better searching for pug rather than Dune. Because there's only one, there's only one pug in Dune. One pug in the whole movie. Yeah. My next door neighbour uh, has a pug called Gatsby, after the Great Gatsby. Oh, very nice. Is it a ducal pug? Well, I mean, you know, Gatsby. You know, he had very common roots, but he met a sticky end. But I think for a time he was lord of his. Lord of his manor and lord of his lord of his epoch, wasn't he? Listen, no, I want to ask you something. When Paul is showing the free the Fremen uh, his weirding module, oh sorry, I thought you were going to say something else there. When he's showing them his ducal pug, yeah, when he's showing them his ducal pug. Now you don't need to throttle. Hey, now you don't need to throttle your pug because pugs have breathing problems anyway. He he shows them an obelisk of their hardest stone. And he asks them. Yes. He gets some guy to punch it and then kick it. And then he gets someone with it like a cutting torch to try and cut it. All of which is ineffective. And then, of course, he blows it up with his weirding module. Which raises the question, 
how did they get the obelisk there in the first place? What do you mean? Well, their cutting tool couldn't cut it. So how the hell did they cut an obelisk out of the stone? I guess this is, you know, there must be a religion based around this fact that the obelisk just appeared. Yeah. Maybe it was always there. They just found it and they built a society around it. Maybe. Now, what is the big black stone in Mecca called? Is it the black stone? Because, I mean, lots of people say, you know, this whole movie is essentially a transplanted Arabic Arabic culture kind of thing. A culture of the sands uh, transplanted into space. I mean, Herbert is using the word jihad here in the 60s, long before it was fashionable. But another reason why I don't really like jihad, I don't get on with it, because it's full of this kind of orientalist exotica. Just to... I mean, I don't know why I don't know why Herbert put it in that way. Yeah, it just makes a thing seem alien, which perhaps is what he was aiming for, right? But do you think it was a mistake to, in the space of like half an hour, give the lead character three separate names? <laughs> well, obviously, yes. Do you have a Chinese name, Paul? I don't know. So it's been a point of contention, you know, when people say, oh, you speak Chinese, what's your Chinese name? And you say, I don't have a Chinese name. Uh, and then they look disappointed, like you've insulted their entire culture. So Richard Jones, do you think, do you think I am ginger? You, I mean, you've been mocking my gingerness. Uh, just, you know, you're just a bit Harkonnen, that's all I'm saying. Very, because well, they were bright, they were Duracell orange, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was no mistaking them. Carrot Top, let's do the scores. It's impossible to score this film. Do you have a clear idea? Well, you've been huffing and puffing and being disappointed with this movie all the way through. I, no, I mean, it's it's an astounding movie. The, the cast alone is is amazing. You've got Patrick Stewart, Brad Dorf, Freddie Jones, Duffier Howard. Uh, Brian Eno on the soundtrack. And a, what a soundtrack. It's like a rock opera. It's not just Brian Eno. It's also Toto. It's not Toto. Yeah, it is. Brian Eno composed the theme. Toto did most of the like music, incidental music. Yacht rock. I mean, Toto are the ultimate yacht rock. Do yachts have like a stereo in the dashboard? They have a cassette deck. Is that how they work? Well, if you're rich enough, you could invite Toto to come and play acoustically, couldn't you, on your yacht? I guess so. Although you wouldn't want to be responsible for losing Toto overboard, would you? That would be very embarrassing. I think the attempts to represent the sandworms, although you don't like them as a concept, I think... It was very well done. Well, this is a great example. Let's do special effects. Okay. Are we scoring this in reference to the modern day or in reference to the time it was made? Well, let me put it this way. Star Wars came out, uh, what, seven years before this? It did, yeah. Yeah, 1977. Yeah. So com- let's compare it to the kind of effects you see in Star Wars. Oh, I would say Star Wars is maybe more competent. Much more. Look at the... Uh, the sandworms are... Shonky, if you ask me. But we're always going to be impossible. I mean, it's just a hopeless task. I don't know why anyone would take on that role, that, that challenge. What about the worms that appear in Star Wars? The similar thing. They are much more impressive, aren't they? And they are on, on screen for a fraction. Does he fall into the mouth of one and then, and then meet Jabba the Hutt or something? Well, what happens? I can't so remember. In Return of the Jedi, they fall in the, uh, in the pit of Sarlacc. The pit of Sarlacc, and it's very impressive, is it not? It's not very impressive, actually, no. But is it not? It's, oh. it's a minor thing. It's not. It's dealt with almost as a joke. I remember being very impressed by it as a kid. Uh, and then there's a worm in Star in the first Star Wars, or, or is it in Empire? But anyway, they uh, Empire Strikes Back, yeah, where they try to hide from the Empire. But again, it's not a major feature of the film. You 
you over, you could overlook the imperfections there. But here, they have to ride the worms to victory. That's a completely different <laughs> proposition. But it's not just the worms in that scene. That whole battle sequence is quite poorly done. There, there's like all these zappy laser guns going backwards and forwards. and It was a bit pew pew, wasn't it, really, all of it? And the, there's an atomic explosion to break a hole through the shield wall. But let me also say that the personal shields that they have for hand-to-hand fighting... At the start of the movie, Paul is reading a book or something, and three guys come in behind him, and then they spar with him. And one of them is Patrick Stewart, and they press a button on the belt, and this kind of brown, translucent, blocky thing appears around them, and they have a fight. Oh, yes! Oh, you mean the uh, sprite graphic that appears around them, Mm -hmm. that has colour clash, yes. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't like it. You know, in the lightsaber, kind of, there's that buzzy, kind of flickery thing. I think they were going for that kind of feel, or maybe it was just really badly animated. Uh, yeah, it was pretty terrible. That is, I think, some of the first computer graphics of a human figure. It's groundbreaking, and I loved that. I love it. I think that was that's an amazing moment. The shields are very much in the in the books, and I always thought they were going to be difficult to represent. And they work in the same way, you know, you, you have to go slowly uh, to get through the shields because they repel fast-moving objects. I, I mean, it's all a bit silly because that guy, Duncan, gets shot by a slow-moving bullet, which seems to render shields completely pointless. Well, that's an interesting point. So, uh, scores for SFX. Do they hold up? Obviously not. Were they impressed at the time? <laughs> no. <laughs> not a patch on Star Wars. As you said, which was seven years earlier. Are, are they coherent? Or like, no, they just look messy. But are the ideas they entail impressive? Yes. And for that reason, I'm going to score it a six. See, this is the problem with Dune. It's a cure its egg. So I'm going to give a ten for the shields. I'm going to give a one. Everything else, including the Space <laughs> Guild navigators in that weird psychedelic thing where they spit stuff at planets and... All the terrible, the terrible ships that, that don't look realistic. and The sets and the staging, I thought, really led to a kind of really built-in atmosphere that I like. So it's a six final score for me. Whereas you've gone quantum. You've gone quantum on your score, a one and a ten. This is the problem with Dune. This is why it's a cult movie. It's a cult movie because everything that's good about it is also bad. <laughs> yes, yeah. Sorry, uh, on to what? On to... Acting. You know, I thought the lead character engaged, and you know, you certainly wanted. Maybe not. Maybe you didn't want him to succeed, but you certainly wanted to see what happened to him. Uh, so I thought the acting just generally drew people in. A strong a seven, I would say, for the acting. This cast is so good. You could pick half a dozen of them, and they'd all be brilliant actors. The only fly in this ointment is the pantomime Harkonnens, right? But okay, let's, so there's there's two contentious points about the acting. Then, first we've 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 got to deal with Sting. Well, thankfully, his egregious overacting was not allowed to take place. But his counterparts from his clan, yeah, I'd agree, it's egregious overacting. But you, you let so you let everybody else off overacting because you say it's the director. But you you are critical of Sting. That no, I'm not. I, I I'm just saying I'm glad that he wasn't allowed to overact. In fact, he does nothing. <laughs> he just he's just there in shot. Doing he does, at the end, say, I will kill you, and jump up yes. and down a couple of times. And then there's the very young girl. There's the young girl playing Alia, the 
mature Alia, the little girl at the end, who shouts, but he is the Quasitarak. <laughs> so all of this means, what's the score going to be for you, Richard? No, I, I'm going to give it. I'm going to give it a nine for acting. Let's do story then. Yeah, that whole dialogue story script thing. What can I say? A three. I don't know whether this is from the book or whether this is David Lynch's influence, but there is a moment where you know the Reverend Mother from the Benny Gesserit. She goes just to say, like, just after she tests Paul putting his hand in the pain amplifier thing, she says to his mother, scoldingly, "You were told to bear only." girls but like paul is like well in the book he's 15 and, and in in the films he's 25 <laughs> so what she's not she's never spoken to paul's mother in 25 years to tell her off for for that for these things for these points uh you you give it a three did you say well okay here we go again then so there are clearly problems lynch has added things which shouldn't have been added like rain yeah he's had a real problem converting this book to a movie. I, you've got to mark it down for a lot of these things. I'll give it a three, but at the same time, it is the story of a you know highly regarded uh, sci-fi book. For that reason, I've got to also give it like a six. But that's only because you know that the story in the book is good. It's different, isn't it? I don't like it though. I, I, I don't have a fondness for it, but it's certainly original, certainly. And you can't deny the influence that it's had. It's been very seminal. Right. I think we have one more thing to score. Science, we've got to score the science. Oh, the science, yeah, which we haven't really spoken about, apart from the fact that the biology uh, and the anatomy of the sandworms is somewhat disputable or dubious, and the shield and the slow bullet stuff is, again, somewhat dubious, isn't it? Um, the floating things. The anachronism of the fact, you know, there's all this technology, and it isn't like a post-event future where they had technology and they've lost it. There's no suggestion they've lost technology, you know, it's all still there. So why the hell... Ah, well... Here's the most interesting thing about Dune, actually. Freddie Jones and Brad Dorff, both the guys with the big eyebrows, did, did you understand what their role was in those in the houses? Well, they're called Mentat Assassins. And they're, like, almost all the careers in Dune are like a calling, like a priesthood. Their job is to be computers. They're human computers. The reason for that is, and as I say, this is the most interesting thing about Dune, is that AI and computers generally are basically banned in Dune. There was a war with thinking machines, and since then, like it's you know, a, it's a death sentence for people to meddle with computers. So every house has its own mentor assassin, who is their computer, as it were. But that idea again of uh, you know AI being so dangerous it has to be banned. That's you know we've been talking about that in lots of other. Of these movies and in Dune, you know, it gets quite an early interpretation of that idea. The science it was okay, I thought. Six point five. I'm gonna finish on. So again, for the worms and all of that other nonsense <laughs> the crackered stuff and the weird shields and the floating lamps, I I'll give it a two. But for Mentor Assassins replacing thinking machines after a war against them, that that's gotta be an eight. Love it. Wow. It's an impossible movie, an impossible movie for the judge. Well, you, what's your score? I think, having listened to my own scores, I think I have to give it a 6.5. I think that's a crazy score to give this movie, because despite everything that we've said about it, 
this is way more entertaining than the Europa Report or the Beyond. I never gave I never gave Europa Report six. I gave it three or four. Okay, okay. It is an entertaining film. I would watch this, you know, again. <laughs> and again, probably. I think you'd have to watch it again if you wanted to get something out of it. This is a problem. This is why it's a low score for me. Is it's, it's to do with inclusivity and accessibility. It just doesn't... I'll give it an eight. and a, An eight in anticipation of an interesting Villeneuve adaptation. It'd be interesting, you know. Villeneuve could easily, I think, having seen some of his work, make this new Dune extremely tedious. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's a real Dune fan. Well, judging what he did by arrive with Arrival, he's more than capable of taking a very indulgent approach to to, to movie making. Well, Richard, this was my choice presented to you, June nineteen eighty four. But Richard, you know, it, it brings us on to next week's assignment. Uh, have you seen Moon? <sighs> no, no, I haven't. Never, ever. I mean, I've seen the Moon. Not the moon. I mean, it's chess. We watch the moon. <laughs> okay. Can you just give us a brief introduction? I, I, I don't know what we're talking about here. A 2009 movie starring Sam Rockwell. He is he's like a miner who lives on the moon, on a moon base. I think he's mining helium or something and send it back to Earth. And he discovers something... How does this relate to Dune? Because I... Mean, well, it's, it, it rhymes, doesn't it? If you're American, it rhymes. If, you, if you're English, it doesn't rhyme. Dune, Mune. <laughs> but this is a lockdown movie. See, Dune is absolutely not a lockdown movie, is it? It's got a cast of thousands, big. Moon is all lockdown, all the time. Okay, so everybody, anybody watching, uh, anybody listening, sorry, uh, who feels the need to know about what we're talking about before we talk about it, then please, where is this available, Richard? Apparently, oh yeah. Yeah, you can stream it on Amazon Prime right now. Wow. Is it free? If you're a subscriber, yep, that's about the size of it. That's it then, Paul. Episode four. That is it for this week. In the bag. Thank you for hosting. Love and peace to everybody in the universe. Mm, Take some spice. Spice is nice. In three, two, one.